following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. We're uh, on this morning reaching the uh, conclusion of our series that we've been engaged in for the last several months called Saved, uh, What Happens When You Believe. And the topic for today is the doctrine of glorification. Um, So why don't we open up with a word of prayer as we turn our hearts to his word and uh, explore this topic. God, as we've been exploring this um, subject of salvation, left with a sense of awe of the things that you have done on our behalf. And uh, as we close out um, the series on the order of salvation, we pray as we reflect on this um, work of glorification that you would open up our eyes to understand the weight of the promise and the hope given us to us in the gospel, that one day we will be glorified, and that one day we will reflect the glory that Christ bears reflecting you. And so we submit ourselves to the teaching of your word and to the ministry of the Holy Spirit at this time, in this hour, in Jesus' name. Amen. Wayne Grudem defines glorification like this. Glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when Christ returns and raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died and reunites them with their souls, and changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. In glorification, God completes this work of salvation that he began with the doctrine of predestination when he first chose us. And the way that I want to unpack this doctrine of glorification is first to talk about this bodily glorification that we're going to experience, and then secondly, the spiritual glorification of our souls, okay? Um, in the 1991 movie Grand Canyon, an attorney played by Kevin Kline uh, tries to bypass a traffic jam, and in doing so, ends up in a really seedy neighborhood uh, infested with with crime. And as he navigates through these deserted and dangerous streets, um, as Murphy's Law would dictate, his very expensive luxury sedan breaks down and stalls. And so in this dangerous neighborhood, he manages to find a phone booth and phone for a tow truck. But before the tow truck can arrive, uh, a gang of thugs pulls up. And as they get out of the car and approach him, it's very clear that they have very bad intentions. And just as they're dragging him out of his vehicle and getting ready to do their business, uh, the tow truck driver arrives, played by Danny Glover. And Glover realizes very quickly the danger that this man is in. And he starts hooking up the guy's car to his tow truck really fast 
and tries to make a beeline out of there. But the gang leader approaches the tow truck driver in a very menacing manner, and it's very clear that he's not going to let him just drive away so easily like that. And it's at that moment that Glover pulls the gang leader aside and pleads with him, and this is what he says in the movie. Man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. The Hebrew word shalom is often translated in English as peace. But the meaning of shalom is much deeper than that. It describes a condition in which everything goes as God intended it to be, resulting in a wholeness of life, a flourishing, a joy, a delight. Shalom is the Garden of Eden. It's all of creation living in obedience to God's design and His will. It's the world as God wills it to be. It's the way things are supposed to be. But as we know, this is not the world that we experience, the world in which we live. In our world, nothing seems to go quite the way we hope it will, does it? Things fall apart. You're out on a wonderful anniversary dinner with your husband or your wife, and you bite into a piece of bone and you chip a tooth. You're on the vacation of a lifetime, and someone steals your wallet. Your car breaks down in a major way weeks after the warranty runs out. Cornelius Plananga writes, We all deal daily with annoyances. The first motorist in a green arrow left-turn lane is often some dreamer who lurches forward like a startled hippo just after the arrow has come and gone. We toss 16 socks into a dryer but only get 15 back. Deeper than annoyances lies an array of regrets. People regret early educational decisions that lock them into particular careers. Usually when it's too late, they regret long neglect of friends and family members. In fact, memories of the past sometimes hurt us just because the roads we missed back there are now barricaded. People suffer fear. They fear cancer and job loss and the death of love. People sometimes suffer from a sense of fertility, particularly in their work. The whole range of human miseries, from restlessness and estrangement through shame and guilt to the agonies of daytime television, all of them tell us that things in human life are not as they ought to be. Our world is a world filled with problems because it is a world filled with sin. As Plantinga describes, sin is in essence anything that violates the shalom that God desires for his creation. In other words, we are all living under a curse of sin. And this brokenness of creation affects every single element of life. Just a couple weeks ago, this happened to my iPad. Um, it fell out of my book bag and the entire screen shattered gloriously. And I got a quote from the Apple store and it was way more than I wanted to pay for repairing it. So I found this small mom and pop shop in town that would fix it for half the price. That I found a great deal, 
But within a couple days of getting my repaired iPad back, the glass began to separate from the case. So I had to bring it back to the store and complain to the guy. And after some complaining, he was willing to redo the job for no additional charge. Waited another week, a few days to get it back. Got it back. And sure enough, the glass is beginning to come off again. And the touchscreen is all glitchy and it doesn't work. And I'm just dreading having to bring this iPad back to this guy and complain a second time. And at this point, I'm pretty sure he, it's beyond him. He doesn't know how to fix an iPad screen. And I think I'm just out 150 bucks at this point, you know? Um, this is life in a broken world, isn't it? And I'm thinking, with everything else that's on my plate that I have to deal with, I have to deal with this headache, you know? But my iPad woes are trivial compared to what's going on globally, isn't it? Uh, honestly, I'm kind of a news junkie. I'm watching the news constantly. And it's not really very frequently that the news actually affects me emotionally. But as I was watching the coverage unfolding on Friday uh, of the Paris terrorist attack and what's going on in Beirut and actually in so many other places in the world, um, I was just filled with this profound sadness that began to settle in my heart. The initial sadness was for the victims of the direct victims of the attack itself. I mean, some of the footage was unbearable to watch. I mean, people jumping out into window ledges, screaming as you hear the sound of gunfire in the background, as you realize the terrorists are executing people in that concert hall. Um, Just horrific stuff. But as I began to think about the sadness that was creeping into my heart, I realized it, it was even a deeper sadness than just for the victims of this crime. It was, as I was thinking about Syria and Iraq and this rise of ISIS, I began to think about this world that our, my children, your children, are growing up in right now, this, quote, war on terror. And I wonder, how bad is this going to get? Uh, what's the end point of all of this? How is this going to end? Uh, we live in a world that has lost shalom because we live under the curse of sin. And the most devastating consequence of this curse is the death and decay that all creation experiences. But the story of the Bible is the story of God on mission to overcome this curse and to restore the shalom that was lost by sin. And this is where our story needs to start when we think about the doctrine of glorification. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9 to 13, it, write, it reads, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
Do you see the picture that Paul is painting for us of all creation groaning in unison because of the frustration of the fallenness of our world? Everything is under the bondage of decay brought on by sin. And what Paul says is as believers, we also groan with the rest of creation, longing for the day when we will experience what Paul says is the redemption of our bodies. Notice that he doesn't say we eagerly await our redemption, but the redemption of our bodies. The specific focus is on our physical bodies, and that's very important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, it says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, which is just the polite way of saying those who have died, those who have passed away. And the message is very clear. It's saying that Jesus represents something that all of us are going to experience one day. This is hard for us to understand because I don't think any of us in this room are farmers. But When a farmer plants his or her crops, what you have is a rough idea of what that year's harvest is going to be like based on certain metrics like the rainfall that year, how much the pests got to your crops as they were growing after planting, uh, based on how well you weeded your fields. So all of these things can tell a farmer roughly whether he's going to have a good harvest or not. But the truth is, there are so many variables you really don't know. You don't know until the harvest actually arrives whether it's going to be a good crop or not. And that's where you have the first fruits. In other words, these are the first of the crop that ripen and mature. And when you harvest those first fruits, as it's called, you know what kind of harvest it's going to be. The corn looks really good this year. It's going to be a bumper crop. This is what is known as the first fruits. And what Paul says is Jesus, when he rose again, he represented for us the first fruits of our resurrection. And what he means by that is this when we look at the resurrection of Jesus, it's a foretaste of the resurrection that we are going to experience in our own lives. Just as God raised his son from the dead, it's an anticipation of what he is going to do for us as well one day. And when we look at that account of Jesus' resurrection, the Gospels go out of their way to make it absolutely clear that that resurrection was bodily. Jesus did not return as a disembodied spirit floating like a ghost among people. But it repeatedly demonstrates he came in physical form when he rose again. And that's why the Gospels recount numerous times how he ate food with the disciples so they could actually watch the bread going into his mouth and seeing that he's not a ghost. That's also why Jesus invites doubting Thomas to go and take his finger and actually touch where the nails went into his hand and touch where the spear went into his side. Luke chapter 24, verse 37 to 39, it says, They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. 
touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And the promise to us is this. Even though we die, if we are in Christ, one day our bodies will be raised back to life and we will receive resurrection bodies. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 to 21, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. In heaven, we are not going to be disembodied spirits floating on the clouds. We are going to have a physical form, and heaven is going to be a physical place. Paul describes the nature of our glorified bodies in 1 Corinthians 15. But some may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. The picture that Paul gives us is of bodies that are powerful and strong and totally immune to the wear and tear that we know in this life. Now, I want to say this. I think a lot of you in this room are too young to really appreciate the hope of this promise. You really are. Because that's how I felt about this passage when I was younger. Uh, I've documented on a number of messages the breakdown of my own body. Uh, It looks something like this, you know. Um, (laughs) Retinal detachment, left eye. Torn rotator cuff, left shoulder. Torn biceps muscle, left arm. Carpal tunnel in my left wrist. Torn ACL, my left knee. Torn calf muscle in my left leg. Four times now and counting. It's like the left side of my body is cursed or something like that. And, and I'm left-handed. It's, it's, it's crippling. Um, I, I actually look back at when I first talked about all my physical ailments back in my early 30s, and the list was half as long. I just, I just realized I keep adding to this list. I don't know what it's going to look like in my 60s. Um, but this is the experience of life in a fallen world. Whether you're too young to know this yet, it's coming. Don't worry. This is what you have to look forward to. I, I never thought that in my 40s I would wish I could just run. You know? I can't even just run anymore because of my knee. This is the process of decay that all of us experience as the strength of youth and health uh, give way to the weakness and frailty of age. But the promise of our glorification is that one day God will give us entirely new bodies that never become sick, that never grow weak and old and frail. But more important, I believe, than the hope of new bodies 
is the hope of new hearts. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 to 30 says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is that great unbreakable chain of salvation that we've been looking at throughout this series. And I might have pointed this out before, but there seems to be one glaring omission in this unbreakable chain, and that is the doctrine of sanctification, of giving us new hearts that are capable of living for God and change the inner change of being more Christ-like. But the argument is this, that the reason why sanctification isn't inserted between justification and glorification is this Glorification process actually captures sanctification, okay? Um, In other words, the process of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ could also be described as the process of increasing glorification as we learn how to give God more and more glory by the way we live our lives. I think that idea is captured very well in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness. That's sanctification, right? Transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In this verse, Paul compares our transformation to be more and more like Jesus as an ever-increasing glory that we will bear, reflecting the glory of Christ himself through our own lives. And in this lifetime, we do our best to reflect that glory. But the doctrine of glorification says one day we will be able to reflect that glory perfectly, perfectly, untainted by sin. Because in this life, no matter how much we desire to glorify God, all of our efforts to please Him are tainted by our impure motives, aren't they? As much as I wish to preach the Word of God every time behind this pulpit at ICC for the glory of God, I know that there is a battle that wages in my heart every time because at the same time in my impure motives, I want you to like me. I want you to think that I'm a gifted speaker. And those are two competing desires, aren't they? the glory of God and the glory of the self. As much as I want to discipline my children, motivated out of my love for them, the truth is often I am driven by impatience or anger or the fact that my will was disturbed. This is life in an imperfect world. This is life under sin. And we don't conquer that just because we become Christians. We struggle with the desire to please God, the desire to glorify Him, and yet at the same time the recognition of how imperfectly we're able to do so. But the doctrine of glorification is a wonderful hope that says one day, one day when we're in heaven, we will be able to perfectly glorify Him without any of that impure motive, without that struggle with sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says this, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, 
we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's the completion of our sanctification, isn't it? We shall be like Jesus. Because in this life, God knows how far we fall short of that goal, don't we? But he says, when you finally see him face to face, you will be like him. That desire of your heart to reflect him perfectly will finally be realized in that final day. Another dimension of our glorification is that one day when we see him face to face, we will finally know fully what we only know partially in this life. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 says, Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. It's interesting because I've interacted with some of you about the series on salvation. I've come to realize that these sermons have actually raised more questions for you than they've actually answered. And, you know, some of you have been throwing them at me. Like, if God chose us, then what responsibility do we have in the matter? How can it be that we have assurance of salvation if we are free moral agents that can choose otherwise? And it raises a lot of perplexing questions, and I don't even have answers to all of them. I don't. There are so many mysteries in this life that we simply cannot answer. As Paul says, it is like looking through a mirror dimly. It's a foggy image, isn't it? And the more you look at it, the more confusing it gets, going, I just don't get it. I don't understand how this all works. But the promise of our glorification is this. One day, when you see God face to face, it'll all become clear. All the clouds will be blown away. All the confusion will be gone. And you will finally know, even as you are fully known. That is the hope of glorification. In his book, Every Good Endeavor, Tim Keller writes about J.R. Tolkien's struggle with writing. As, of you, as many of you know, Tolkien is the author of uh, the Lord of the Rings series, one of the most popular fantasy novel series ever written, arguably the most popular. Um, he was also a very well-known English professor at uh, the University of Oxford. Tolkien had been working on the Lord of the Ring manuscripts for decades, and he was getting into his 50s now. And uh, at one point in the project, these books became so complicated, so uh, unbearably enormous. If, if any of you have ever attempted to read The Similarian, <laughs> you know, like, this guy was a perfectionist and he was insane. And he basically fell into despair thinking he's never going to finish it. It's going to be a project that is never going to be published before he dies. As a perfectionist, he became so ridiculously obsessed with every little detail of this Middle-earth world that he had created for his books that he often couldn't bring himself to move the story forward and complete the novels. And then in the midst of this despair, World War II broke out. And it was in the midst of this season of discouragement that Tolkien 
put down his work on Lord of the Rings, and he instead embarked on writing a short story called Leaf by Niggle. <laughs> that word niggle literally means... Um, let's see here. That, that word niggle literally means to fiddle at something in an ineffective way, to spend time on petty details uh, in a very inefficient manner. That's what the word to niggle actually means. But in his story, niggle is a painter who must go on a long journey whether he likes it or not. It's a journey that he doesn't want to take, but one he cannot avoid. But before Niggle goes on this journey, he's determined to paint a picture of an image that has captured his imagination. It's the image of a magnificent tree that he sees in his mind with a sprawling forest in the background and snow-capped mountains behind those forests. Caught up in this vision of this painting that he wants to do before his journey, he sets up this enormous canvas in his house that's so huge that he needs a ladder to get to the top of it. This is going to be his masterpiece, an ambitious one. And so he begins to paint this painting of a tree, this enormous, magnificent tree, But as time goes on, he's making almost no progress completing this work. The first problem that Niggle discovers is that he's a much better painter of leaves than he is of trees. And he would obsess over every little detail of every leaf that he wanted to paint. But because of this, he realized the tree wasn't getting painted at all. The second problem was that Niggle had a kind heart. And he was constantly distracted by his neighbor's requests for help. And on one cold, wet night, his neighbor asked Niggle to fetch a doctor for his sick wife. And as a result of that errand that he runs for his neighbor, Niggle catches an infection and develops a very serious fever. Niggle realizes that his time is almost over, and he goes about frantically working to complete his masterpiece. But despite his best efforts, it's unfinished. It's not even close to being done. When the driver arrives to take Niggle on his journey, and it becomes very clear that that journey that Tolkien intended to represent in the short story is death. And Niggle doesn't want to get in that vehicle. And he cries out, it's not finished. It's not finished. But that journey is unavoidable. He has to get on that car. Sometime later after Niggle is gone, new tenants arrive and move into his abandoned house. It's a dilapidated estate now. And hanging up there in his yard they find one little piece of that canvas, original canvas, left hanging. And on that little piece of canvas is a single leaf. And so this new tenant takes that piece of canvas down, frames it, and he brings it to the town museum where it's put in an obscure corner where no one sees it. And hanging there is a placard that says, Leaf by Niggle, okay? That's his legacy. That's his life story. 
But interestingly, that's not where the story of Niggle ends. Because the story continues where Niggle is riding on a train headed to heaven. And on this train ride, he hears these two voices arguing with one another. And he realizes that they're arguing about his life, an assessment of his life. And one voice, a stern, mean voice, represents justice. And this voice of justice accuses Niggle of living a worthless life, an aimless, meaningless life. But the other softer voice of mercy makes a case for Niggle and says he had a kind heart and he lived sacrificing for others. When the train finally arrives at the outskirts of heaven, Niggle gets off the train and he sees something that catches his eye and he walks up to it and he realizes that what he's standing in front of is the tree that he had been imagining all of his life that he attempted so futilely to paint. But now completed, it stands before him. Tim Keller writes, If this life is all there is, then everything will eventually burn up in the death of the sun, and no one will even be around to remember anything that has ever happened. Everyone will be forgotten. Nothing we do will make any difference. And all good endeavors, even the best, will come to naught. Unless there is God. If the God of the Bible exists, and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one, and this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, pursued in response to God's calling, can matter forever. That is what the Christian faith promises. When I first heard that story of Leaf by Nagel, I, I almost wept. I had never been, I think, so moved by hearing a story like that before. Because in a lot of ways, I feel like Niggle, you know? I feel like I'm trying to paint this glorious, magnificent tree. And at the end of the day, it's going to say, Leaf by Steve Lee. You know? That's how I feel about my life so many times. So many grand plans. So many high hopes. So many visions of what I'd like to do in my life. And yet, entering deep into my 40s and looking to my 50s, I wonder, what is going to be my legacy in this life? And when you start getting down that rabbit hole, it gets pretty dark, doesn't it? What did my life amount to? Everything I try to do for my children, everything that I try to do in ICC, everything I try to accomplish as a missionary doctor in Africa, what did it all amount to? Unless there is eternity. Unless there is actually that tree that awaits us one day that God is going to complete despite our failings and our weaknesses. Paul writes to the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus 
may also be revealed in our body. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far awaits them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is, what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Amen? That is the hope of glorification. That despite our best faltering efforts to live a life that pleases God, in so many ways we are going to fail. And yet the hope, the promise of glorification is that God is one day going to complete by His faithfulness what we could not do in our own faltering lack of faith. That is the hope of glorification. We've traveled a long journey in this series, Saved, haven't we? We began with the message of our election, based purely on God's grace and not by anything good that he saw in us. And then God calls us out of that predestined status, giving us a new heart, regeneration, removing a heart of stone with a heart of flesh so that we could positively respond to his call. And we respond to the call with faith and repentance, a process known as conversion. And then God justifies us, declaring us to be innocent and righteous in his eyes. Why? Because he declared Jesus to be guilty on the cross on our behalf. Then we are not left simply as sinners acquitted of guilt, but in his amazing love for us, he adopts us into his family so that we become children of God. And then he sanctifies us by his power, transforming us to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. And because of God's faithfulness, we have confidence that we will persevere to the end and be faithful to him. Nothing can snatch us out of his protecting hands. And finally, as we looked at today, he will one day bring us into his eternal rest in glory transforming our lowly bodies into glorious bodies, giving us hearts free of sin. As we look at all of these different elements of salvation, from past to present to future, I want, if you leave out of the series with nothing else, I hope the one takeaway resounding message from the series that we've done is this, how God-centered our salvation is. Yes, there is human responsibility. Yes, we are free moral agents that are called to be accountable to the choices we make. That is in the Bible. But to me, the overwhelming sweep of the witness of Scripture is what God has done on our behalf. From beginning to end, it is His work alive in us that is going to complete the work that He began. In other words, when we finally get to heaven 
and we're clothed in white, standing before the throne of God. I don't think the witness of the saints of God is going to be, I made it, I did it. Oh, you did it too. Good job, high five. Woohoo, winning team. We did it. I don't think that is going to be what we're going to be saying in heaven, is it? Revelation chapter 7 actually tells us the response we're going to have. Verses 9 to 12. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. That is going to be the singular testimony of the saints of God around the throne of grace one day. Not look at what I did. Look at what good choices I made for my life. Look at how I'm better than other people because I knew the truth when others didn't. Not what a good life I lived. The testimony of the saints dressed in white around the throne of the Lamb is going to be salvation belongs to our God. It was all you, God not me. By your faithfulness alone do I stand before you this day, saved, covered by the blood of the Lamb. The whole purpose of the series was not to engage in some philosophical debates about the mechanics of salvation, but to understand how great a salvation has been granted to us by God himself. And so the conclusion of the series is not debate, but worship what God calls for, to say, see what a great and awesome work I am doing in your life and realize that the security that you have that you will one day finish the race is in the security of my faithfulness and mercy and goodness. In so many ways, I identify with this Tolkien character, Niggle, trying my best to paint the masterpiece of my life. And yet, The more I am honest with my faltering efforts, the more I realize I'm just painting a leaf before the driver comes to take me on my journey. And yet, my hope one day is to arrive in the presence of God and see that tree that has caught my imagination all these years, to see the church perfected and the saints of God bowed before the Lamb of God in worship. That's the hope of glorification. Would you just pray for a couple minutes here as we get ready to respond through song? Let's pray before the Lord.